0: Compris ta détresse, cher amoureux, et je cède à tes vœux, fais de moi ta maîtresse, loin de nous la sagesse.
1: Hello, welcome to Unknown Warriors. I'm Michael Baker. There's a war memorial in Cambridge that stands just outside the Botanic Garden on Hills Road. It's called the Homecoming and depicts on a carved stone plinth a slightly larger-than-life-size bronze figure of a young British Tommy of the Cambridgeshire Regiment. Tommy is in mid-stride, bareheaded, his helmet in his hand, rifle slung casually over his shoulder. On his back, beside his knapsack, a laurel wreath of victory hangs, encircling a German helmet, a trophy of war. Our soldier looks quietly confident and purposeful, and his head is turned to one side, his gaze directed towards the nearby railway station, where, one imagines, he has just returned from the war. That look back is also, perhaps, a solemn acknowledgement of those who have not returned to the station with him. Prevailed in 1922, four years after the First World War's end, and it's a memorial not to the fallen, but as the inscription puts it, to those who served in the war. It's a celebration, frankly, of victory, and reminds us that for the generation who fought the Great War, this was a conflict that ended in 1918 with the Allied defeat of the Central Powers, Germany and Austria Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. The armistice of that year was followed by three days of street celebrations all over Britain. In July 1919, shortly after the signing of the Versailles Peace Treaty, a huge victory parade was held in London. Captured German guns were shown off and the day culminated with a lavish firework display in Hyde Park. It was only in the later 1920s that Armistice Day gradually lost its celebratory flavour and became a date of sombre remembrance for the fallen. I'm not, of course, trying to impress on you that we won the First World War. My point is rather that today's dominant British narrative of 1914-18 to 18 is a very particular one that tends to focus on the dead and the waste of it all, portraying a generation as hapless victims rather than people of their own time and place. Even the recent centenary, imaginative as it often was, found it difficult to get away from these traditional resonances but they bear increasingly little relation to what professional historians now know and understand about the conflict. Many of them produced new books for the centenary, which, based on years of research and fresh sources, showed that the First World War was altogether stranger, more complex and more modern in every sense than we've been led to believe. These books were often weighty, usually expensive, and mostly had a limited reach. Mostly, they came and went. This seems to me a terrible waste. They deserve a wider audience. In this ten-part podcast series, I talk to some of these centenary historians to find out how they've breathed new life into the First World War. I make no claims to a definitive account. My chosen topics are pretty eclectic. But they cover a broad range. What emerges is a very different picture of this first global conflict from the one we've been used to for so long. <laughs> In this first podcast, I talk to Heather Jones, Professor in Modern and Contemporary European History at University College London. Her major research speciality is the First World War, and her knowledge of what's been written on the subject is encyclopedic. I asked Heather first, what was the background to current work on the war? How broadly had historians viewed the conflict from the 1960s onwards? That is, from around the time of the 50th anniversary, when serious academic research into the subject began to take off in Britain.
2: In the UK, the debate is really revolving around the role of the generals in the 60s, so particularly the role of Haig. Um, what his uh, room for manoeuvre really was during the war in terms of the the strategic decisions he he made, um, whether it really was a case of lions led by donkeys, uh, that would be the key discussion in the UK and it's quite interesting in that that is not paralleled in other European countries.
1: General Sir Douglas Haig was British Commander-in-Chief on the Western Front from December 1915 until the end of the war. He's been a controversial figure because of the high British casualties suffered at key offensives, such as the Somme and Passchendaele. In 1961, Alan Clarke's book The Donkeys, a scathing attack on British command on the Western Front, gave renewed currency to the notion that British Tommies were lions led by donkeys.
2: Britain continues to be obsessed with the role of its generals in the First World War in a way that we really don't see for France or for Germany or Italy. Um, It's very much still an ongoing uh, discussion in in, in British military history. And that is, again, would have been something very much present in in the 60s debate. Um, In in the 60s and 70s, you have a very strong turn towards social history, and particularly in in, in Germany, of history from below. So the history of the ordinary soldier becomes a really prominent part of the discussion. In in the UK, figures like John Keegan doing something with his book The Face of Battle uh, which one of the battles it looks at is the psalm and people like Martin Middlebrook. So you've had this this shift towards social history. The other key uh, element that's that's coming to the fore in the 60s and also uh, in in the 70s is this discussion around the war poets' role uh, in in the UK. Um, There's a very strong um, revival of interest in figures like Wilfred Owen in this period, um, partly linked with the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam movement, social changes that are happening more broadly in society uh, around issues uh, such as nuclear weapons, and out of that dis- discussion in the kind of international level you also have voices like Paul Fussell's work The Great War in Modern Memory. So... in in this 60s, 70s period, you start seeing the origins of the idea of looking at the memory of the war and how the war is remembered and what that actually means uh, for societies. Uh, And that's, again, something that has marked our centenary uh, and our centenary discussions because memory studies and the idea of how the First World War is remembered and commemorated has become a huge field of interest for historians since the 1990s. So many of the origins of our actual current debates exist in the 60s. It's not that it's all been surpassed. um, It's that those debates... Um, began at that point uh, and have evolved now uh, into the present.
1: One of the key ongoing debates about the war relates to its origins. How did it start and who started it?
2: The Fritz Fischer debate had kicked off in 1961 with Fritz Fischer's book on uh, German culpability, effectively, in in, in the outbreak of the First World War, having used previously inaccessible archives uh, in East Germany. And that was really uh, in in, in full swing in the mid-60s. Fischer was very much um, being resisted by many of, of the German historical establishment, many of whom felt it was inaccurate for him to... Uh, looked to Germany as having uh, played a, a key role in causing the First World War, uh, only accepting that Germany was uh, responsible for the Second Very much by the time we got to the early 2000s, the consensus was that it was uh, an Austro-Hungarian uh, and German um, um, action that, that caused the First World War. There's some debate about how you would attribute responsibility between those two states, but they were very much seen as the guilty parties. Um, with a particular emphasis on Germany, uh, the work of figures like Annika Mumbar really highlighting the role of Helmut von Moltke in causing uh, the, the, first, the First World War to happen.
1: Helmut von Moltke was the chief of the German general staff in the years leading up to the outbreak of war in August 1914. Annika Mombauer's work shows that von Moltke encouraged a belligerent and confrontational approach that decisively influenced events.
2: Um, and then we had the work of, of, of Christopher Clark, which uh, brought back into the picture, really, the role of, of, of Serbia, the role of Russia, Serbia as a very fractious state, um, and that question mark over Russia. Uh, we've had also had new work by Dominic Levin on Russia. And this sense of Russia as something of, of, of a mystery, that historians had really overlooked Russia, partly because of access to archives and other, other issues, and really bringing in that Russian decision uh, for, for partial mobilisation and what does that do to radicalise the German decision-making process. I think that's now also come back into the picture. So, So I think where we're at now is... Uh, Something of a division of opinions um, uh, amongst historians as to to what precisely is, is the culpability of each individual state. But everyone agreeing that we now need to look again in much more detail at decision makers... And at that July moment, um, I think there's very much a consensus that the war is not the product of long-term structural problems anymore. That old argument that was about imperialism and the rise of the alliance system, etc., etc., I think a lot of that has now died down. There's a real focus on mistakes that are made by decision makers or deliberate choices for war that happen in July 1914. And that's now, I think, where the attention of everyone has, ha- has moved.
1: And more broadly, historians are now looking much more closely at the kind of cultural assumptions, the contemporary mindsets, if you like, that lay behind the decision-making of 1914.
2: Yes, I think there's been an, a renewed interest in things like social Darwinism uh, and attitudes to racial hegemony and also mindsets around the idea of, of war as a kind of existential uh fight for survival for states. William Mulligan has done a lot of good work on the origins of the First World War and maybe the mindsets not just in 1914 but way back before that and how they're getting the idea of a kind of need to expand um, need to to accumulate more territory to try and reduce the rise of nationalism by incorporating fractious um, national minorities in the borderlands around one's own state Um, that sense of that that is a way of dealing with the rise of nationalism and some really interesting work on how do dynastic states like Austria-Hungary which is based on a dynastic principle not a nation state principle trying to resist the idea of nationalism as a way to unify the people because it has so many different nations living within it and how do they cope with an era where actually war is now being waged and termed purely on nationalist rationales there's lots of really interesting work on how how's the dynastic principle in decline and nationalism on the rise in this period and how that's affecting decision makers
1: more specifically Historians are starting to examine powerful and influential group cultures within a broader national culture. German militarism and its related values are a particular focus.
2: There has been some really valuable work done on militarism and I think particularly figures like Uta Frevert, looking at barracks culture in Germany and this idea of a kind of military masculinity as central to status within Germany has been very important. She's also looked at honour culture, so the idea that your, your, your military uh, masculinity was based around ideas of honour, ideas of the duel, ideas of saving face, which help us to understand July 1914 as a kind of standoff for German militarists, which they couldn't step back from. Also the work of, of Isabel Hull has been really important in talking about this uh, German idea of having models of how war should be waged, so the idea of uh, the concentric battle of annihilation, that as being the model for the Schlieffen Plan, something that is tried out in German South West Africa before the First World War and then in 1914 is moved to to, to the European theatre.
1: The Schlieffen Plan was the German military's response to an envisaged war on two fronts, in the West against France, in the East against Russia. Using a rapid preemptive strike, the aim was to knock out France in six weeks and so allow time to transfer German forces east to face the Russians before they fully mobilised. In the event, in September 1914, the plan failed when British and French armies held the Germans at the River Marne,
2: halting their advance on Paris. We have a really strong sense of, uh, from Hull's work of, of, in a way, the rigidity of mindsets of German militarists and that sense of how that identity and that that kind of belief system in German militarism is driving decision-making. In a way, we can see that some of these actors in in, in 1914 are already acting out behaviours that are learned behaviours from organisational cultures within the German military.
1: A long-held popular notion about the war has been that its outbreak in 1914 was greeted in the combatant nations with universal enthusiasm and patriotic fervour. All those photographs of cheering crowds, long queues outside recruiting offices and soldiers waving from crowded troop trains. This image of widespread jingoism is now firmly discredited.
2: I don't think any historians really now accept the the idea that European populations rushed into war, um, delighted to have war, wanted war, were pushing for war. What we now see is a better understanding of which parts of populations wanted war. So if you look at somewhere like Germany... There's a very large working class social democratic movement that the social democrats are the biggest party in the Reichstag. They're a party of the workers international. They're a party of workers of the world unite. War is a capitalist endeavor. War is used to slaughter the working class by, by, by the elites and the employers. In 1914, they support war because they believe that Germany is being invaded by a tyrannical absolutist Russia that offers its workers no rights. So we have a sense now of a real reluctance amongst the German working class population to accept war, and they only accept it with a kind of resignation that this has to be fought because Germany's been invaded by Russia. The part of the population in Germany that we see is actually quite gung-ho for war are young male students. So... The reason historians thought there was war enthusiasm in Germany and and argued that in the past was because they were looking at images, photographs of, of crowds of young middle class men waving their hat, delighted at the outbreak of war. This is a very unrepresentative group of the German population. Young male students were a tiny fraction of the population and they saw the outbreak of war as a chance to basically uh, stick it to the socialists. They go marching around socialist parts of town waving flags, uh, jubilant at the fact that now suddenly all these socialists are going to have to actually fight for their country and this is a chance for them to, 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 to show what the true Germany is. Those sources do show enthusiasm, but only for a small number of people. German peasants and German workers are horrified. Same thing for France. In France, the government was expecting that much of the population would actually not show up when they issued the the draft orders. They were really quite worried that conscription wouldn't work if there was a future war. In 1914, that doesn't happen. The the, the conscription process goes very smoothly because the vast majority of French citizens feel that France has been invaded. It's an aggressive war by Germany. Therefore, with resignation again, with reluctance, they, they rally to support their state. They believe they must defend the republic. The French population's majority peasants, August 1914 is harvest time. No one wants to leave their harvest, leave the women and children and the elderly to bring in the harvest and let the farm go to rack and ruin while they go off to war. It's, it's very much a reluctant thing. School teachers' reports from across France, particularly across rural France, tell us this story of people who are really devastated that war has come but who believe it must be fought. And that's the reason, I think, why you end up with such a huge war in 1914, that populations really see this as, as something that, 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 that has to be done rather than something they're enthusiastic for. Uh, again, in the British case, 10,000 people demonstrate in Trafalgar Square in the week before uh, Britain enters the war against going to war, mainly nonconformist uh, church members and uh, Labour supporters. Once war breaks out, that dissent largely disappears because, again, there's a sense that Belgium has been invaded. This is a war about righteousness, just causes. So, again, in Britain, the enthusiasm is the, is the young male students uh, and a certain section of the kind of um, lower middle class who see it as a bit of an adventure. But it's very limited. Most people are really horrified at war.
1: Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Western Front has always been central to the British view of the First World War, but the popular focus has tended to be on perceived British defeats, especially the Somme and Passchendaele, on high casualties and on the generals held responsible, almost as if the Allied victory in the autumn of 1918 didn't happen. I wondered if there had been any shift in these perspectives in recent years.
2: I think what we have now is a better understanding of the constraints within which generals were actually working on the Western Front. I think there is some more um, empathy, actually, for their position and also a, a stronger attempt to try and reconstruct their mindsets, their understandings of of, of the geopolitical situation, their worldview. How did they understand attrition? How, how, how did they cope with mass casualties? Did they really see so, soldiers' sacrifice as something that was uh, s- such a glorious thing that it, it, it negated the horrors of, of, of the way these men were dying? And um, So there is a lot of new work on how the generals actually... Um, understood the, the, the war itself in, in a kind of cultural and mentality sense. What were their other options militarily? Um, looking at things like the development of the tank, looking at things like the development of air power and actually really seeing that that from nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen there is quite a strong development, a learning curve if you like. We no longer see the generals as just doing the same thing over and over again. I mean that sort of black adder sketch. Um, that's now been very much discredited with the work of Gary Sheffield, uh, Jonathan Boff and others, on this learning curve within armies. And we also know now, because of the work of, uh, of Amy Fox, that actually the, the, the learning curve is international. So it's, it's, it's very much dealing with learning curves in other armies too. There's a, there's a system of learning from one's allies.
1: So what's the view now about Allied victory on the Western Front in 1918? Is there any consensus among historians about how this was achieved?
2: There's a very strong debate about what actually leads to Allied victory and it's ongoing. There isn't a consensus. Um, The latest and most important work is that of David Stevenson with our backs to the wall um, really looking at at the ways in which the German collapse happens, uh, and particularly the importance of Germany's allies falling away and Bulgaria uh, leaving the war um, as, as, as a key trigger in Allied success on the Western Front. So putting back in, if you like, that broader picture of what's happening elsewhere. So... I think for the Western Front, what we see now is kind of a number of hypotheses. There's the hypothesis about the learning curve, that in fact the distance uh, that the armies travel between 1914 and 1918 is such that it enables them to fight better in 1918, thereby restoring the war of mobility. The second thesis is that um, 1918 is, is a success story of coalition warfare. Once you get the German Spring Offensive, you end up with Hague finally being forced to accept an Allied Generalissimo and a French Allied Generalissimo, Ferdinand Foch. And that's absolutely key because suddenly you have someone who's coordinating the British, the Belgians, the French and the Americans as they come into play in 1918. So that you get an actual coordinated coalition effort, whereas before in the war you just had allies who were occasionally talking to each other, liaising in conferences. But nobody who was able to impose sending reserves from different armies to different places as they were needed along the whole Western Front. That joined up thinking comes in in 1918. And there's an argument that that is the key in the Allies winning the war. There's another argument, which is that we've overlooked the French contribution. French army has been effectively rested on the offensive uh, following the mutinies of 1917. Uh, in 1918, it is now strong enough to come back in uh, with major counterattacks at the end of July 1918, which predate the the, the British counterattack uh, in, in, in the first week of August 1918. And this French contribution is really key in setting up the British 100 days uh, offensive um, and we also have an argument that it's the American impact it's the psychological impact of the Americans really getting boots on the ground in summer 1918 really starting to to, to make an impact particularly in September um, and that that is really uh, a key factor in why the allies win because the German army can actually see this new resource that is virtually untapped that's just going to keep on funneling men and supplies into the western front um, there's also an argument that actually it's all about German army morale Uh, And that's really uh, the key work of Alexander Watson. It's not about the Allies winning the war in 1918, it's about the Germans losing it. And losing it because they gamble with the spring offensives, lose so many men in those offensives, that actually they lose the core of their military strength. And then when the counterattacks come with the French first in July and the British in August, the German army doesn't have anything to fall back on. Its resilience has been broken. From late July, um, you see mass surrenders developing um, into the hundreds of thousands across August and September 1918. We haven't seen surrenders on this scale on the Western Front in the war at all. The French and British take more prisoners in those months than they've taken the entire previous years of the war. You see junior officers leading their men in orderly fashion into captivity because they don't want to fight anymore. The final argument is the blockade one, that actually it's about what's happening on the German home front, no longer able to supply its army effectively with foodstuffs. Big debate about that. Not all historians would agree. We know from the work of Mary Cox that the blockade is very damaging on the home front, but actually German home front morale is pretty good until you get to September, October, when they start getting information from their politicians that the war is lost. Actually, German home front morale is not bad given the the really bad supply situation it's facing. So for me, the argument is really the spring offensive as this big mistake, big gamble that doesn't pay off for the German army and the impact that has on morale. And that's absolutely central. And then you have the coalition warfare element. Those are the two key key things, I think, that really help uh, result in an Allied victory at the end of 1918.
1: The state of morale... How men coped over four long years in grim conditions on both sides of the Western Front has always been an area of interest for professional historians. But now the approach is a much more nuanced one.
2: Morale is a very interesting debate and I think there's a consensus now that morale is really multifactorial and that actually... When we look at morale, we need to use interdisciplinary techniques to understand it. So that would be the difference to how we do morale now and how it was done maybe 20, 30 years ago. The, the, The basic needs, so food, sleep, access to rest, some kind of basic living conditions... Um, medical care, those, those as key issues in morale. So I think camaraderie now is something that um, is, is now part of the picture, whereas before it was probably the key thing that was talked about a lot with regard to morale. And that was how the veterans talked about the war, the comradeship that got them through. But some of that was a post-war projection back on their experiences and how they remembered the good bits. So I think that there's now a sense of camaraderie as one factor amongst many others in what kept men going while they were at war. We also need to look at ideological factors. So to what extent did soldiers feel the war was worth fighting for? To what extent were they emotionally invested in the war? I've mentioned the work of Alexander Watson, who's obviously key on this for the British and German armies. Uh, but it's also important to mention the work of Annette Becker and Stéphane O'Dan Rousseau in France, who've looked at the idea of how soldiers, in some cases, believed in the war as a kind of crusade, um, a kind of crusade for their nation-state, a sense that, it, that this was about national survival and about the defence of their culture at home and their peoples at home. So a sense of World War I is actually being really quite a deep ideological conflict, um, not just about conscripts who are doing a job and who are forced to be there, but also intimately linked to people's beliefs about the war, about whether it was worth fighting, whether it mattered. And when those beliefs collapse... Those as being the points where we see mutinies, mutinies in Russia, mutinies in France.
1: The traditional narrative of the First World War, in contrast to the second, is of a conflict that saw a separation between civilians and combatants between the front line and the home front. That division can no longer be sustained
2: in the 1920s. The memory of the war crystallizes around the fallen combatant, and that becomes the thing that people remember because that is the, one of the most painful aspects of the war for many societies. That led to a neglect and forgetting, if you like, of the extent to which civilians were actually caught up in the First World War, were killed in the First World War, were displaced by the First World War. And it really skewed our understanding of this conflict and gave this strange image of a war that was a soldier's war uh, rather than a war that encompassed whole societies. Civilians on the home front, maybe discussed in terms of munitions workers, but not really discussed in terms of actual victims of war. If we actually look at this conflict and consider the fact that, for example, um, Vast swathes of Europe are occupied quite ruthlessly by the central powers. Virtually all of Belgium, um, northern France, right through to looking at cities like Warsaw in in eastern Europe, the Baltic states. We're really seeing huge populations that are completely disrupted by this conflict and vast deportations during the war. Um, vast numbers of people who are who are removed from where they live simply because of their ethnicity. Um, in the case of the Russian Empire, it, re- it removes a huge amount of its Jewish population. The Russian state has severely oppressed them. and um, Some of these Jewish populations actually see the Germans uh, as, as, as potential liberators in this conflict. So Russia brutally deports these people. World War One sees sees considerable air raids. Nothing on the scale of World War II, but you see the bombing of London. Uh, you, you see hundreds of people killed in June 1917. If you look at Germany, Karlsruhe is bombed. If you look at Paris, Paris' shell. Civilians are killed at mass in Saint-Gervais. We look at the, the, the role of internment camps this is, the, this is the first conflict where huge numbers of people are simply rounded up and interned, again on the basis of ethnicity, no other reason. Um, in the case of Britain, all uh, German civilians of, of, of military age are interned, simply locked up for an indefinable length of time until the conflict ends. The same thing happens in Germany. If we look at austria hungary it's even more ruthless. It in turns, its Italian-speaking subjects, so people who are Austro-Hungarian subjects but who simply happen to speak Italian. 12 million refugees after the war. 12 million people who've been effectively displaced by the war and the subsequent uh, conflicts that come out of it, like the Russian Civil War. And even at the start of the war, this refugee process is very evident. So if we look at Britain, 250,000, that's a quarter of a million Belgians come to Britain in 1914, fleeing the German invasion. And they stay for virtually the whole of the war. That's a huge refugee experience for for, for the United Kingdom, but it's, it's virtually forgotten. And obviously the heart of the First World War that we're now really starting to grapple with is genocide. So the Armenian genocide, what the Ottoman uh, Empire uh, starts to do as it starts to collapse and implode. This this genocide that is deliberately unleashed against uh, the Armenian minority of of, of the empire is a way of getting rid of them um, and effectively consolidating a a nation-state model. Um, So the two world wars look much more connected when we bring the civilians back into the framework.
1: And indeed, it's hard to think any longer of 1918 as marking the end of the war. Conflict came to a close on the Western Front, but in many other parts of Europe and beyond, violence on a major scale continued well
2: into the interwar period. What we have as kind of popular memory is obviously the memory of the, the jubilation of the armistice. The fact this this damn thing had ended, right? And that, that was a moment of relief, it was a moment of hope. It's French and British crowds out on the streets celebrating and, and that's the moment before the failures of the armistice, before the failures of Versailles, before all the messy peace treaties that don't actually deliver in many ways what Europeans were hoping for. So those years that come after, the 1919, 1920, 1921, 1922 23 period which is incredibly violent it's also something we're now bringing back into the picture what's happening in central and eastern europe is states collapsing uh, dynasties collapsing revolution spread of communism um, russian civil war and the collapse of the the ottoman empire and the greco-turkish war so huge further displacement in the in, in that region uh, with um, greeks basically fleeing the collapsing ottoman empire you know effectively uh, ethnically cleansed in many cases from it and Muslims exchanged out of modern day Greece. Half a million Muslims returned back the other way uh, for no other reason than the fact they were simply Muslims living in, in Greek territory. Civilians whose lives are utterly torn apart and um, powers like Britain are starting to use some of these ongoing violences as ways to try and aggrandize uh, their, their own colonial positions. Uh, France as well is doing the same thing in the Ottoman Empire. Or um, powers are also looking to try and stop communism, so they're allowing other forms of violence to take place. So, for example, the Freikorps in the Baltic states, uh, running amok, committing mass violence against civilians after the First World War, um, including anti-Semitic violence. Their argument is they're fighting communism. Their argument is they're protecting German minorities in the region.
1: So, can one say, then, that 1918 only really marked the end of the war for the victors?
2: I think a part of the problem is that at the end of the First World War, victory suddenly appears very, very hollow. The, the kind of victory mood doesn't last very long at all, even in powers like Britain and France, because actually everything you originally wanted, which is the 1914 world, has fallen away. So even the victorious powers are at a loss about what do they do next? What do they do with empire? What do they do with you know, trying to take new colonial territories from the defeated states? What do they do with the rise of America, which has come out of the war? America is suddenly a global player with a powerful army. It hadn't been that in 1914. So even for the victor powers, there's this huge sense of disorientation and if you look at somewhere like the United Kingdom, it ultimately loses more territory than Germany does after the First World War because it loses the south of Ireland uh, and Donegal. It loses 26 counties. It loses a huge swathe of what had been its pre-1914 territory as the United Kingdom. And it loses them in violent circumstances. So actually war continues within the UK as well. Um, and Britain has to send paramilitaries to Ireland to try and put down uh, republican violence in this period.
1: One of the limitations of earlier histories of the First World War was their national, if not nationalistic, character. So British studies tended to focus almost exclusively on those areas which involved Britain, the Western Front, Gallipoli, the Middle East. And the same was broadly true of other nations' historiography. Today, historians are starting to see this as truly a world war, with far-reaching implications.
2: One of the most interesting things to come out of the 1990s was the rise of, first of all, comparative history and then transnational history. So looking at this war and and realising that you can't actually tell a national story in isolation because to understand the war you have to understand reciprocal phenomena and that even goes from military history so looking at something like the advent of the metal helmet as a protector for troops on the western front that comes in in 1916 it comes in in all three armies very quickly but they copy each other and it's actually a junior officer led initiative where people are making helmets for themselves and trying to get the higher ups to recognize that everybody needs to have some kind of head protection you can't understand how armies adjust unless you look at them in in, in reciprocity with each other they learn from each other they copy each other they adjust they adapt very rapidly use of gas be similar one side does it the others it, re- respond very quickly and even at that level transnational history has brought us so much um, transnational history then evolved into global history so we now have a sense of looking at the war's impact um, you know particularly through the empire system which existed at the times and looking at how this war really relates to a moment in history where imperial state structures are coming under huge pressure and the impact of total war causes so many of them to completely collapse. Very, very interesting trends visible in multiple areas of the globe that actually mirror each other.
1: Finally, where do we go from here? Where is the research heading? What are the aspects of the First World War that we still don't really understand?
2: At the moment, the historiography is moving very much towards looking at the environmental history of the First World War, the impact that the war had on the landscape, the destruction of of, of, of northern France, for example, um, and looking at the blockade, the impact of the blockade on, on, on societies. But I think for me, the areas that, that, that are still gaps, um, we still don't know enough about religion in the First World War. It was a huge factor in day-to-day life and of, of mindsets of people at, at the time. Um, global religions uh, barely being touched as a topic for the First World War and, and, and new work only being done now. So I think that's one key area for me where we, we need to know more. The other key area for me is the issue of race. The First World War is a very interesting moment between the kind of social Darwinist uh, late 19th century and the interwar period, where we see the rise of very rabid racializations of, of, of European populations in, in nationalist cultures. The Germans are described as a race, uh, Prussians particularly, the Prussian race. In the British case, for example, in France, they talk about a German racial identity, about German bodies smelling different to French bodies, about Germans eating differently. I mean, really a kind of biological essentialism of the enemy starts happening in World War One. And that's particularly also the case for troops that aren't white. There is a real need for us to go back and do more work on what happens between 1914 and 1923, particularly on these ideas of race, because some of those languages then reappear in really violent ways um, in in the interwar period and into into the Second World War.
1: I've been talking to Heather Jones, Professor of Modern and Contemporary European History at University College London. The other podcasts in this series will examine in more depth some of the areas of the First World War that Heather touches on, as well as others. Heather Jones's own writing on the subject, as well as other works she mentions, can be found on my website www.unknownwarriorspod.co.uk In the next podcast, I talk to Professor Gary Sheffield, One of a handful of pioneering British historians of the Western Front, whose work has profoundly changed our perspective on this key theatre of the conflict. I hope you'll rejoin me as I continue my exploration of the real First World War in Unknown
0: Warriors. (laughs) Plus de tristesse, Et j'aspire à l'instant précieux,